Welcome everyone to the 85th episode of the New Gen Mindset Podcast. I'm Dan Kozell here with uh, Nick Tartaglia. Um, What's up? Dan? I want to say how you're doing, but it's almost like the fruition of everything that we've been talking about for two years is kind of mm-hmm. finally unfolding. I mean, you're seeing banks, regional banks start collapsing at an alarming rate. Um, what do you, what do you think about that right now, man? Well, let's think about it, man. We were saying, well, first it started off by saying lowering rates to zero wouldn't have any issues. There'd be no problem with that. Subsidizing the market would not lead to any problems. Then they said there'd be no, and they said there'd be no inflation. What happened? We had inflation. They said they won't have to raise rates for a while. They started doing that as they said they wouldn't. Then they said the banking system was really resilient and strong. Now we've got banking problems starting to fall apart. So like clearly the government experts and their economists are more incompetent than competent. Can't really seem to predict the outlook of the general market because they don't seem to really understand basic economics. And um now we have things kind of developing with the 0.25 rate hike that we just got, plus gold peaking above its all-time high, plus another bank falling apart. It's like a bingo game at this point. We don't know when the next one's going to happen, but it definitely seems like it will. So all this, you know, developing pretty quickly. And, and, and I think there's uh, a gentleman who we haven't spoken to him uh, probably it's in about well, on, the year and a half, so- on the podcast yeah. for about a year and a half. Um, and I love what he's done with his website now. He's the CEO of Louis James uh, and now called the independentspeculator.com. With us today is Lobo Tigre. Welcome back, Lobo. Well, very happy to be here. And if I can just jump in on that intro, Go. I can't help myself. Uh, Nick, you're too yes. optimistic. You're too positive. How could you say that they're incompetent? They're not incompetent. They can't tell you the truth. The Fed cannot tell you recession is coming because they will create it. Mm-hmm. And you know, the Secretary of Treasury can't tell you things are crappy. That's a technical economic term mm-hmm. in the industry, you know, because then they'll make things crappy. I think they're dishonest. Mm-hmm. I think it's um, I mean, it's it sounds <laughs> kind of ridiculous, but I think it's somewhat naive to think that they're just incompetent. That's not what's going on here. And I'm not saying it's even a big conspiracy. I mean, it might be, but I'm not even making that case. I'm just saying that public officials who see the brown stuff heading for the fan, they cannot tell you the truth. So we should not expect that. And we should not Mm -hmm. be surprised when they're wrong. Lobo, you've been hitting the nail on the head with a lot of the memes that you've been putting out on uh, your LinkedIn. And uh, I think you've you've slowly started to pick those up, at least in the last like eight months I've seen. And there's some really hilarious ones out there. But I, I really want to build on that topic of just like, you know, the experts being sort of disingenuous, because that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the question I have for you, and I don't know if there is a real answer, but like, when, when does this all really stop or does this just continue? <laughs> well, let me and- pull out my crystal ball here. <laughs> uh, wouldn't, wouldn't we all like to know that's the multi-trillion dollar question. If we could answer that, you know, uh, we wouldn't need to mess around with investing. Well, no, we probably would still implement it. <laughs> yeah, we would, yeah. But anyway, yeah. Um, well, let me, let me take a step back here. Because uh, one of my things is, is, is you can call it a pet peeve. You can call mm-hmm. it my soapbox. Or you can call it my contribution to the conversation here. I hope it's the latter. Is I think it's really dangerous when you get these gurus out there telling you 
you know, we know what's the truth is, you know, we have an angle, we have this special understanding of, you know, this thing the Fed is doing that nobody else understands, but we do. And therefore, you know, you should do what we say, or, you know, we understand the conspiracy, therefore, you know, you know, um, I'm not a guru, I'm a due diligence guy. I have thoughts about what's going on. Of course, we all do. I'm a speculator, we all have to think forward into the future and project. But it's, arrogant to think you know what will happen it's arrogant to think you know what is happening with certainty and it is i think dangerous to tell audiences that you know and therefore believe in me and buy my newsletter right you know my one little tiny gold stock that's going to go to the moon you need to subscribe now all that stuff so sorry but this i just you ask a question like that and i know that that's what people want they want me to convince them that i know and therefore they know what to do right? And we'll all make a billion dollars. Nobody knows that. And you shouldn't trust anybody that tells you that they do. Even, you know, my my esteemed um, people that I learned from in this industry, most experience, nobody knows. And, and the more honest ones will, will admit that. Mm-hmm. So if you ask me an endgame question, I can tell you a story. We can write science fiction all day about how this is going to play out, but nobody really knows. But let, let's, there is, I think, a useful metric here. Here's, here's the mm-hmm. thing to watch for. Instead of convincing you that I know what's going to happen, maybe I can convince you that here's something to really watch for, for when the house of cards is going to come down. That's when foreigners start dumping dollars in a big way. And I'm not just talking about BRICS countries deciding to do business between themselves and their own currencies, or talking about, you know, someday, some when, some years down the road, a BRICS currency. All these ideas are out there. I'm talking about the average Joe or Mrs. Chen or Mrs. Singh or anybody out there in the world just deciding, you know what, this dollar is a hot potato. I don't want to, you know, I don't, I don't trust the dollar anymore. And when we see all those trillions and trillions of dollars that are outside the United States start coming back, whatever the central banks are doing, whatever the governments are doing, when people, when institutions, investors, companies start saying the dollar's a hot potato, I'm, I'm, I don't want to hold dollars. And that comes flooding back in the United States. That, I think, is the end game. That's when the exorbitant privilege that the United States has enjoyed, if you know what I mean, mm-hmm. comes undone. That's when the United States' ability to export inflation stops. I think that's really when you know you need to see how many chairs are left because the music is winding down. What is the time? I mean, it's a really loaded question, but like just based on what's happened... Uh, over the last, let's call it like the last eight months, right? Because it's really been like a slow pacing domino. We saw the crypto exchange start collapsing. Then we saw the contagion be spread into, you know, the regional banks or like the Silicon Valley bank. Now you're seeing it in these regional banks. And now, you know, looking over here, Pac West is like on its Mm -hmm. way out. You know, there, there's the old adage of like the bigs keep getting bigger. You've got JP Morgan acquiring a bank. So it's like, well, being handed on a silver platter of bank basically. Yeah. Yeah, you left out poor Mr. Bailey over there across the pond and the guilt crisis that they had. And and rather than tell you, here's the next domino to drop. And I did not predict this particular banking panic. I didn't predict that this would be how it will roll out. In retrospect, it seems perfectly logical to everybody, right? You know, uh, borrow long, lend short, and then suddenly you're in a crunch. Um, And you know, but banks have been doing that for, for centuries. You know, why is it a crunch now? Well, the record pace of increase from the Fed going from zero to five so quickly, mm-hmm. that was unprecedented. 
And by the way, people like to say, oh, well, Volcker went from 15 to 20. 20 is much more. Yeah, but the difference from 15 to 20, mm-hmm. 33%, the difference from zero to five is basically infinite, right? <laughs> Mathematically infinite. So uh, it's not surprising that people didn't, you know, they didn't adjust their business models for mm-hmm. such a reality that was so unprecedented. In retrospect, we can say that. In retrospect, we can see what happened with the guilts in England. I didn't know either of those things were going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen next. What I do know is that if you hit the wall like that, zero to five, and those, you know, that rate wall, things are going to break. And I think it's a mistake. All those people that were out there, even you know, as little as a week ago, saying, "Oh, well, this is it. it. The Fed broke something, and it wasn't so bad, mm-hmm. right? You know, they they tamped down the banking panic. Everything's going to be fine. Team Soft Landing was back in in the limelight, right?" And suddenly, you know, they've gotten kind of quiet on us, you know, <laughs> team transitory turned into team soft landing and now it's team crickets. <laughs> so, so, so sorry, just the, the, the punchline is that I'm not going to join the prediction racket of saying, here's the next domino. But I am saying that the factors that led to these dominoes are still in play. The dominoes mm-hmm. are still falling. I think that was it. It defies belief to imagine that the tightening that we've seen, not just in the US, but around the world, what's going on can happen without more things breaking. Mm-hmm. So, so, <laughs> so recession. I think we're, we're all in agree. I think we're, we're, we're all in agreement on that. It's just like, we, we can't see the crystal ball, but Nick, go ahead. I know you want well, to. Well, I just want to ask. So with that, taking all these things into account, what risks, because obviously as a speculator, you're accounting for certain variable risks. So what risks are you looking at and kind of establishing as your parameters to kind of see where the trickle effect is kind of developing? Well, broadly, I, you, know, we could, you know, the big umbrella is systemic risk. I think we're not done with systemic risk. That's what breaking something means. There's going to be more bad stuff happening. I think the, you know, it's interesting that Powell, you know, I, I generally don't believe anything a central banker says. Mm-hmm. But something that seemed to me to come close to the truth was when he talked, as we're recording this, it was yesterday, and he talked about how inflation is going to stick around longer than people are expecting, longer than the markets are expecting. He still thinks it's going to 2%, which I don't think he really mm-hmm. believes. But he's saying it's going to take much longer to get there. Um, so I, th- I think the narrative out there that the Fed is going to beat inflation, things going to go back to 2%, never mind soft landing, but even, you know, with, with much more pain, the, I, think it's, I think it's delusional to think that we're get, ever getting back to 2%. Uh, you know, just the new Iron Curtain and the, and the new Cold War and the energy scenario, what's going on around the world, the macro does not support that. The deglobalization after the COVID lockdowns. Um, you know, the, the era of cheap money, the talking heads will even admit this. Oh, we're beyond the era of cheap money. Mm-hmm. That is such a huge statement to make. And it's not factored in. That's that's a risk that I don't I really don't think broader markets or even in our wheelhouse in the resource sector. I don't think people are adequately pricing that in the inflation thing. The genie is out of the bottle. That is a much bigger deal than people uh, accept. Other risks that I think people are not paying adequate attention to. I think the U.S. labor market is not strong. I think the US consumer is stupid on average. I think that's another technical term. I don't mean to insult anyone personally, <laughs> but there's this is Doug Casey's definition of stupidity, and that is an unwitting tendency towards self-destruction. Financially irresponsible. I'm, I'm not talking IQ. I'm talking 
behaving in a, you know, if, in a way that if you just gave it a few seconds of thought, you'd realize, you know, to, to, to be running out of money and charging up your credit cards, that's not a good thing. You know, mm-hmm. cutting, you know, tightening your belt is the appropriate thing to do there. That is the non-stupid thing to do there. So I think the difficulty that companies have had hiring since COVID has had a masking effect on how, uh, on the cracks underneath the surface in the U.S. labor market. I mean, that is a real thing. It is really hard to get people to help. And, you know, I, I have a, a home reconstruction project going here that is now going on two and a half times budget of time because it's almost impossible to get people to show up to work. Mm. And then, you know, if the plumber doesn't show up, the electrician can't finish. If he doesn't finish, then, the, the you know, the painting guy can't fit it, right? It cascades. Mm. So, so this is a huge thing in the economy. I think the labor market, you know, the stimmy checks, everything that was done through a, a massive... Um, curveball out there that nobody understands or is fully prepared for. So, you know, all this, oh, the labor market's strong, the consumer's strong, and that's starting to come unraveled now. I think people are going to be shocked at how how unraveled it becomes, at how bad that's going to get, and how, you know, crazy, uh, hard landing. I, I think it's going to be, you know, the Fed's going to give it to the economy good and hard, and by the time they realize it, it'll be too late. It was interesting because yesterday, if you read the transcript, um, one of the things that Powell had said is like the banking system is stable, and I I saw I saw that, and I I honestly I laughed out loud um, because it was just such a disingenuous comment to actually say that. But again, to your point, whatever he says, the market is very sensitive to that right now. You've obviously been looking at resources. Sorry, let me just jump on that because sure, go go. You know, he said that seventeen hours later you know, we, we have the headlines, right? When it's less than that. He said that 2.30 yesterday afternoon. And then last night, we already had the PacWest Bancorp headlines coming. And then this morning we have, you know, all the mainstream financial media with all these things. So yeah, it was about 17 hours later that mainstream financial media was talking about systemic risk is back and other, ban- you know, what's the next domino. And so it's less than a day from Powell saying, you know, everything's fine. And already another we, one. You mentioned the memes. We put out a meme on this contrasting Powell's statement 17 hours before the headline from Powell and the headline from this morning. Um, oh, sorry, real quick. He's like Jim Cramer of Wall Street, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, except that Cramer's just often wrong. Powell yeah. has to be, Powell has to tell you what, what the party line is. He has to say what he thinks will help the most. It has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the truth. Sorry, but just the memes that you mentioned and this one this morning with contrasting Powell versus the headlines this morning, we have a, a resident meme master. His name is Kyle Johnson. I have a team here. It's not just me anymore. I, I have a team and the guy is brilliant. He's so funny. He gets it. He gets Austrian economics. He gets the gold <laughs> narrative. And and we we collaborate on some of these memes, but to give credit where due, really, they come from his fertile mind and you know he, sh- he should get the credit for that. <laughs> It's just brilliant though, because uh, following it on LinkedIn and I always get a good chuckle out of that. But yeah, no, what I was going to say is, you know, we saw what, what's, what's been going on. You've been actively involved in the resource sector, um, you know, as a speculator and as a speculator who is a professional uh, who does his due diligence, you know, when you look at that sector right now, it, it appears that there's a lot of hidden value uh, that, you know, most people are just not aware of, or they just don't understand how to value it. So 
what are you looking at on that side of the of, of those sectors? And then like, you know, maybe you could share some like your three criteria that you're looking at for companies that are going to do well uh, during this super cycle that is that I think we're all pretty in agreement of, of what's upcoming. Sure. Well, I don't know if I could boil it down to three things, but maybe one key thing to start with is not to be too religious about any one thesis. You know, uh, I, I'm heavily long gold and silver, but some of my silver bug friends call me Darth Silver because I see the role of silver changing in, in the real world, right? The use case for silver is changing. We don't need to chase that rabbit hole too much. But just because I say things that are not what everybody wants to hear, you know, they get mad and that's not a rational response as an investor. As even if you decide I'm wrong, fine, argue with me, come up with you know different data that shows why I'm wrong or whatever. Make your own conclusion. That's fine. You don't have to. I'm not giving you gospel here. What I say is not carved in tablets of stone. But if you get mad instead of engaging in the facts or the arguments I'm making, you're doing yourself a disservice. Mm-hmm. And if you're like, go Team Silver instead of what is reality, what are the facts here? you're setting yourself up for failure. And I'm not banging on silver in particular. I guess I'm maybe knocking on a few uh, overly excessive silver fans, but I think this thing is, is important. And right now, specifically to right now, you know, oh, I'm a resource investor. I love, I love metals and mining. Well, but you can't love them all and you can't love them all the time. Mm-hmm. With the things that we've been talking about, the macro setting that we started this conversation with, I think you're nuts if you go along industrial metals right now. And you can make an argument, oh, well, yeah, copper is so vital to the green agenda and the, and the supply is short. And, the, you know, for decades, we're not going to have enough copper. And I actually think that's all true. Uh, there are some projections that are saying that there will be a surplus this year, maybe next. Some companies are saying that. Others are saying the opposite, that we're already, you know, not going to have enough copper. But it doesn't matter, even if it was true. And all of the experts agreed that we're in a copper shortage this year. If, if the recession deniers give way and suddenly all the traders are, are realizing, oh my gosh, the recession is real, it's going to be bad, they will sell, quote, the energy sector, they will sell metals, they will sell every, you know, commodities writ large. And we have seen this, you know, my entire almost two decades of experience, there have been a few of these cycles, and then standing on the shoulders of Doug Casey and Rick Rule, my mentors, we the same Playbook always rolls out. A recession is always bad for the industrial metals. So, you know, as I, I'm a copper bull long-term, but right now I wouldn't touch a new copper stock. I'm not looking to deploy a penny into copper or lithium or nickel or any of the other hot metals right now that are part of the green agenda, even though I think the green agenda will go, go ahead. So you see what I'm saying? I'm not trying mm-hmm. to pick on any one metal. It's not, I'm not talking about silver or even copper. I'm talking about freeing your mind from getting too crazy about any one thesis. You always have to be oh, data dependent, but in a good way, right. in the sense of actually paying attention to the data and, and being able to change your course mm-hmm. when you realize you've made a mistake. It's like a Bruce Lee quote, the be shapeless, you know, move like water. <laughs> it's, it's the same concept. Yes, Aikido actually is the martial art that's famous for that, you know, flowing in, you turn the enemy's energy against him, as opposed to just stand there and beat him. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I lost the train of my thought. Oh, sorry, that. talking about how you're not a copper bull, but you're still right. willing so, to let the macro world kind of shape your thought right. process. So, 
Oh, my, oh, my point was the Fed's data dependence just means, oh, well, all the cards are, you know, we don't believe anything. We'll just do whatever we want. I think that's too data dependent. Um, so I'm not sure where we want to go from there, but what, what this means to me now is looking at what's happening now, the trends in the markets now, there are three commodities and only three commodities that I'm interested in speculating on right now. That's gold, silver, and uranium. And gold, silver, because they're unlike other commodities, they're monetary metals. And, you know, platinum and palladium, some people call them precious. They're expensive, but they don't circulate as money. Maybe Paul Krugman will fix that for platinum, but not for palladium. Uh, <laughs> right? they, you know, they're not monetary metals. <laughs> I'm glad you get my jokes. I, I, I understand <laughs> it because there's, there's a guy who won a Nobel Peace Prize. And for the funniest thing, he just made just a comment the other logic. day. He just made a comment the other day about the. He was attacking someone that was that was attacking the U.S. dollar, and he said America doesn't only depend on a strong dollar. If the dollar were to fall, America still has other things that makes them strong. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. It was hard to kind of see that perspective of his. Well, okay, but we, well, but Brent, continue, Brent Johnson, <laughs> the dollar milkshake guy, likes to say that. You know, if the dollar runs into too much trouble, don't forget the United States Navy, the Marines, the Air mm -hmm. Force, the Space Force now. And so, you know, but that's a scary world. And, they, and mm -hmm. that's getting into science fiction visions of the future. Um, so my point was gold and silver are monetary metals. They're not like coffee or pork bellies or even copper. Right. And you can see uh, today as we're recording, we had gold and the dollar up at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was clearly, the, you know, the the banking reemergence of the panic there is pushing safe haven buying into both of those right so so the and silver has been underperforming gold because of its mm -hmm. its use case change it's greater industrial impetus now but it does move with gold i'm, I'm not saying silver gets left behind I, I just think gold will probably move uh sooner and it, it often does silver usually lags and then catches up with gold anyway historically so those two and then uranium is is really the odd duck because Yes, it's an energy mineral, and yes, energy gets whacked going into a recession, but not only is it unlike almost any other commodity out there, still below the cost of production, the global average cost of production, almost nobody except for the top one or two companies can make money at these prices. So, you know, that's different from all the other minerals out there. Plus, Unlike, you know, even gas, you know, if you if you're going to tighten your belt because of the recession and maybe not go see grandma every weekend, but maybe every other weekend or something like that, that affects, you know, your discretionary energy use. You want the light switch to turn the lights on when you flip it. And that's what uranium does. It, it's the fuel for nuclear reactors. And yes, in the future, there's visions of different reactors. But right now, it's all uranium. It's baseload power. It's the stuff you always want there, the stuff that keeps hospitals going, airports, all that stuff. So the use case here, I, you know, I don't want to go so far as to say it's recession proof. I don't think anything is, especially in the short term. But it really is quite different. And because the cost of mining remains above the average you know, spot price still, and the long-term, this is a little bit technical, but long-term contracts have been rolling off. And so now the end users, utilities are being forced to the table to sit down with the miners and set new contracts. This is happening now. This isn't a someday, maybe if this wasn't happening now, I'd be just as bearish on uranium this year as I am on anything else industrial. But this is happening now. And the spot price historically cannot ignore the long-term contract price for long. So I think whatever is happening in the energy space broadly, 
The long-term contracts we're going to see signed this year are going to drag the spot price upwards over the course of this year. And that's going to happen even with the recession. It doesn't mean that you know spot won't wiggle down here and there on a bad headline. And it certainly doesn't mean the stocks won't get hammered if there's a market, big market waterfall event. But if the stocks get hammered while the price of the underlying commodity is going up, I would see that as an opportunity. I'm I'm watching uranium pretty closely uh, just because I do have like some small uh, positions on that. Um, the big fear on that is sort of like the perception of like, a, you know, Orange Man uh, has talked about this extensively. He goes, and I'm quoting him here. He goes, "There's two, there's two, there's two, there's two N words that are really bad. The first one we know we're not going to say it, but then he goes, the second word is you know nuclear." Um, and I found that quote really fascinating because it's like it, it is true. Like we're at like the political spectrum of the world right now is at a tipping point. There's no question about that. You're seeing what's going on with BRICS. It's like, you know, at, at what point do you feel that? I would push back and say now, now, not not at what point that narrative has changed. I, yeah. I think, I I think that view is outdated. It it was certainly true, and they're certainly true in certain camps. There are people that you know trying to convince them that nuclear energy is a good idea is like going into a church and trying to convince people that Satan was misunderstood. It you know it's they don't even hear. It's by definition evil. There's no argument to be made there. Um, but if you happen to be in Europe where there's a war going on. And uh, your, your energy prices have gone through the roof and you, you lucked out because last winter was unusually benign. Mm -hmm. This is not a, a theoretical conversation about, you know, you, so, I mean, even Germany, even though they did finally shut those last three reactors down, mm -hmm. they delayed the shutdown. That was, that was sort of in this sector, this was the equivalent of hell freezing over. And hell didn't actually freeze over. But Germany was about to freeze over, and they did the rational thing. And even Greta Thunberg weighed in, you know, because they were burning more coal. So even Greta Thunberg said that Germany shouldn't shut down its nuclear reactors at one point. This is a massive change. This is a sea change. It's, you know, this isn't just an imperceptible shift of the tide where you can't tell when it stops rising and starts falling. I mean, this is the rush now. The tipping point has already passed. And, and even if Germany continues dragging its feet, Eastern Europe is totally gung-ho. You've got you know, several countries in Eastern Europe you know, planning you know, collectively scores of new reactors, putting contracts on with Canadian suppliers, right? And then you've got the BRICS countries. Never, you know, even mm -hmm. if Europe it takes longer to implement all this, you've got the BRICS that are just going gangbusters. Mm -hmm. you know, China alone has, has like hundreds planned. And you look at India and their energy needs and so on. And this is this is happening. This isn't a someday, maybe some when thing. I understand why, you know, long suffering uranium bugs are are tired of being told about the fundamentals because the fundamentals have been bullish for uranium for years. Well, for for one thing, that is coming into play now. We have seen actually for the last five years, uranium has been on a very volatile but upward trend. And people who who get annoyed because it hasn't done anything lately, well, you know, you really need a little more discipline if you're going to be a resource speculator than that. And by the way, uranium's having a great year, so I don't want to hear any of this "what have you done for me lately" thing. It, that's that is irrational sentiment. And if you're going to let that make your investment decisions, you're setting yourself up for failure. So anyway, fundamentals have been there for years, and for the last few years, they've been playing out. We are actually in a five-year uranium bull now. 
I don't, I don't understand why people are unhappy with that. Like people say, what's wrong with uranium? And I say, what? Something's wrong. <laughs> it's been going up. Um, and now the narrative shift, I think, is huge. I, I really think it would take another Chernobyl style event to derail this narrative. That's how strongly I think this is this. And, you know, I'm a speculator and resource speculation is so volatile. There's, there's no such thing as a sure thing in, in resource speculation. But I'm so confident that this is as close to a sure thing as I can see. And the, the one thing that would derail it would be another major nuclear accident. And I always, you know, my, my nuclear, pro-nuclear friends hate it when I say this. They, they don't want to, you know, like, shh, you know, don't scare people. But I think that's important because you don't want to bet the farm on this. Um, if there is an accident, these are investments that can literally go to zero, like faster than you can get out. So, see, you, you should not go into this without that awareness understand that you are taking that risk but that aside you know those accidents are very rare uh, and even fukushima it wasn't really a nuclear accident it was a tsunami and mm. anyway so 2011 I, I just think this is right I, and right and 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 how long ago was was chernobyl and three mile island it was really a non-event that it was a big scare that nothing really you know so anyway um I think it would take that to derail us. I think this is this is my highest confidence resource speculative thesis right now. I'm I have more uranium in my portfolio than I've ever had. The stock right now at the top of my shopping list is a uranium stock. Even though we're going into a recession. Would or rather I think we're in one but the recession deniers are going to give up the ghost here in the months ahead. So I have two types of questions. The first one was is more a little focused on uranium. Is there a geopolitical factor to uranium thesis? As in, are you only looking for plays where they're they're kind of de-risked from a geopolitical standpoint? Uh, yes and no. I, I understand the question. And there's certainly a premium for U.S. specifically uranium plays. The U.S. government has become a new uranium end user. Like the military always was, but that wasn't disclosed. So it's kind of hard to quantify uh, and the U.S. hadn't built a reactor for decades. But now this new uranium reserve that the U.S. is building up, you know, that is that is taking uranium pounds off the market. And that wasn't there before. And that has started this year. They're buying it. This is another thing that's not a someday or maybe or, uh, you know, Trump actually proposed this. And back then people got all excited. And, and I'm kind of like, well, you know, let's see if it gets through Congress. Let's see if it gets authorized. Right. Uh, but it's actually happening. Oh, by the way, that's another point. You know, this is happening under Biden. Even though it was a Trump proposal, this is happening under Biden. And Biden has has proposed billions to research the new uh, fuel for the next generation of reactors and stuff. So, again, this is this is a, a major sea change. Um, but on a practical level, what I'm saying is there's a new customer in the United States that is creating it hasn't created a, a bifurcated price market yet, but it is creating extra demand within the U.S. And clearly there, you know. That's an advantage for the producers that can source from the U.S. Um, that also means that there's a premium for these obvious plays, uh, and you have to decide whether you're willing to pay that premium or not. But more broadly speaking, you've got the new Iron Curtain, and I, I think for the Europeans and, and Western powers in general, I think there will be a, a, an advantage to projects in the West You'll have to deal with not in my backyard thinking and and so on, but we know, you know, we you know anybody who's paid attention to the sector knows where you can go, where the hotspots are, where where you can get uranium mines permitted, and where you really having to dream. 
So, okay. So perfect. So now to the other part was more focused on like other resources outside of your triple gold, silver, uranium. So in a hypothetical scenario, let's say, let's say we do have a recession. Let's assume it's not stagflation. Let's assume it's a recession or a type. Do you think the government, or is there an, a scenario where you see that resources prices could still do very well? Let's say, hypothetically speaking, the government decides to use um, subsidizing the build out of the in, uh, electrification and EV and green as a way to subsidize the market to create new jobs and kind of create stimulation. Yeah, like the civilian conservation corps and all that stuff. Yeah, lots of jobs. And, and there's also just the idea if they if they panic, right? If the recession is as bad as I think it will be, and they just open the money floodgates, that that will be inflationary and that'll boost commodities prices. Um, I think in time that would be true. I mean, you you print enough dollars and prices for things will go up, including commodities. But if the recession is bad enough and people are pulling back and manufacturing is retrenching, even if prices in general are going up, it may not help industrial minerals very much, at least not right away. So my broad view here is, and by the way, I'm, I'm very bullish on copper after the recession as mm -hmm. an example. And I'm, I'm coming around to the lithium argument too, but after the recession, you know, the auto sector gets hit really hard in a recession. So there are a lot of other metals and minerals that I would look at after recession. I am also very, very partial to the oil story. That's being really choked off in a big way. Capital starved way before the world is ready to stop burning oil for fuel. So yeah, there are other things, but sort of, you know, after the recession does its worst is, is the thesis. Um, And then, and then we'll just have to see at that time what what are the market realities. But my my the the general answer is, is there's a lot of things we could do. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't assume that the metals will necessarily benefit right away. Um, and even if the governments come around to launching these new programs, like you suggest, you know that'll take a while before that mm -hmm. plays through. So let me give you an example, like yep. when. When the China reopening started happening, right, that was never announced. It was just, you know, last year, last fall, suddenly it fell apart. Like the government couldn't maintain the lockdowns anymore. And it was just obvious that the floodgates were opening up. Copper surged enormously in the months immediately after that. Dr. Copper, right, and other commodities responded, oh, China's reopening. This is going to be great for commodities. But guess what? Here we are X months later. And, you know, Chinese manufacturing is in contraction. Mm -hmm. And yes, the reopening has boosted Chinese traveling, tourist traveling and so on. But, you know, tourists going out that haven't been out for a while, you know, that's not consuming more copper or iron. You know, iron prices have tanked big time, too. Um, so the this assumption that this Chinese reopening was going to be great for all commodities, that turned out to be a very dangerous assumption. And again, any guru that told you, you know, this is the truth, this is what you must do, right? You know, that's a danger. So to your question, yes, that's a, that's an intelligent thesis. I can see that playing out, but it would be dangerous to assume that it would necessarily benefit, uh, you know, your whatever junior mining stock right away. It could be more like a two to three years where you see a slump, and then that kind of then the money finally trickles its way into the market and actually forces drives the prices back up, and then you can consider TL win. Where prices do go back up afterwards, type thing. It could be. We'll have to see how it goes. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, exactly. I think the pivot and the new money printing will benefit gold and silver much more quickly because they're monetary mm -hmm. instruments. 
right? They're monetary metals. And I, I think it'll, I think the US will, will experience this first. And I think that'll benefit the Euro, for example, as well. I'm not a big Euro fan. I'm not saying it's the best currency or it's the new dollar. I'm just saying when this happens, I would expect that to have benefits for alternatives to the dollar when, when the money floodgates open in the US, which I think will happen first. But these other things, it'll take time to trickle out. And we'll want to watch it carefully. We'll want to see, you know, at some point, the green agenda, I mean, it, it really, it, it cannot help but create the demand that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's going to be huge. I don't think the governments will back off. I think it, entire younger generations are so sold on this mm-hmm. that it's going to happen whether we think it should or, you know, it doesn't matter how much it's going to cost. Exactly. You know, the, the Extinction Rebellion people, you know, they think we're all going to die. If you think we're all going to die, who cares how much it costs, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that not everybody's that extreme, but I think that mentality prevails in younger generations and they're coming up into the power structure. So I think that's a multi-decade trend that's investable. But we've, you know, that doesn't mean that today you should run out and buy a lithium stock, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we've got to go through this ringer on this recession first. We have to see how it plays out. And, when, and then... Here's the other thing, you know, people hate, you know, they hear people who are hardcore gold bugs or into mining stocks, they hate the letters ESG. You see that and they immediately see red, they get all mad, see the, like the bull at the red flag, right? Um, But, you know, that's going to happen with this agenda regardless. Mm -hmm. Therefore, even if you think it's a load of dingoes kidneys, if you've got a mining project and the company is ticking all the ESG boxes, Right, and they're they're spending the extra money, extra capex on electric shovels and electric haulage equipment, and so on. Uh, they're sourcing it from hydropower. You know, they're going you know going the extra mile to source their power from from a dam instead of you know a coal fired plant or something. Well, in this world where it's so difficult to permit a mine, those are the guys that are going to be able to go ahead when the when the push comes to shove, and we've got to have the copper. It's going to be the companies with the best ESG credentials that are going to have the ability to deliver for shareholders. So you like it or not, you've got to pay attention to this as an investor. It's interesting too, because I think the ESG bubble has burst, but to your point, I mean, you should, there's still going to be sort of that environmental consciousness, right? But there's got to be a balance there. There shouldn't be the hysteria of like the AOCs of the world calling out the end of the world in the next six years. I mean, they've been saying that since Al Gore published, uh, what's that movie called? The Inconvenient Truth. (laughs) They've been saying it for years that the world was going to end. To your point, you know, the, being a good corporate citizen is what we used to call it. That's not mm-hmm. really a new idea. It is not a bad thing for a company to care about you know, the communities that it operates in. It, it actually, it's not untrue that being a good corporate citizen is necessarily bad for even just the bottom line. Mm-hmm. They've but, just repackaged it every couple of but, decades. And, and of course, taken to an extreme, right? You know, you you can't hire less qualified person because you have a gender quota or mm. a racial quota or, or something like that. Like you can, in mining, at least you can kill people doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. You've got to have the best people you can get. It has to be a meritocracy. Amen, is, to, a, amen it, to that. I mean, we hammer the head on it. We, we, we hit I'm the nail on the head with From Nick. somebody out there, but <laughs> oh, well. 
No, but it's true because at the same time, like obviously if, because typically market trends or market growth, it was typically driven by the market itself. But now in a scenario where you have a recession, where the markets have become so dependent on the government and its own and its cheap money and its stimulus that like you get to a point where if the electrification and the whole green initiative is driven purely from government through the central banks or through the banks, then obviously they're going to come with strings attached in certain conditions because they're not going to start allocating that capital without their political ideologies also flowing within that same mechanism. So it only makes sense. You want to kind of make sure that there is that respect. Yeah. And, and you know, that that adds a, a layer of extra due diligence here. You need to, to sort of separate the, you know, what is a reasonable thing to do of good corporate citizenship versus, you know, some ridiculous greenwashing or heavy handed thing or some regime imposed by the government that actually is really bad for the business. You know, that mm -hmm. you have to hire all kinds of people that you don't need or something, you know, that's going to make the enterprise not deliver for shareholders. Yeah. And, and yes, I'm, you know, as, as an investor, as a speculator, I have to care about delivering for shareholders and, and, I'm not ashamed of that. That's not a bad thing. Investors, if you don't have investors, you, you have no capital to fund progress. Mm -hmm. So it is not only, I think, ethical and correct to look after your investors. I think it is the invisible hand delivering for the common good to bring progress and you know, new capital, new projects, new resources, new technologies into being. What do you think is the next domino to fall? I know it's a loaded question, but I'm curious, just based on all the BS that's been going on, all the chaos, like what, what's really the next domino to fall? It doesn't have to be the bank, you know, just on a macro perspective, you know, what's your biggest risk factor? I think we're going to see, I'm not sure if this is a specific enough answer. Mm -hmm. I can't say what sector will be, but I'm the shoe I'm waiting for drop is more uh, bankruptcies and layoffs. You know, some of these layoffs have been so long delayed, they may not happen until the bankruptcy. You know, the companies are so worried about holding on to, to employees that are so hard to get. And then when you do get them, they don't want to work. Mm -hmm. or they, you know, I, I'm, I'm all for paying anybody whatever the work is worth. But if you can't pay somebody more than what the value they create is, there is actually a limit here. Right? You, you cannot pay a Starbucks barista $500 an hour to serve $5 coffee. They can't serve that many coffees to, to justify that wage. It's just mathematically not possible, right? So I think there are unrealistic expectations out there in the workforce. Just today, as we're recording, the, the, there was a report in the press about U.S. productivity going down. Mm -hmm. Like, and, and, and this was billed as, oh, it means that the Fed is going to keep rates higher for longer. It's like all anybody cares about the Fed. And, and I'm looking at that and I'm saying, you know, this is really bad. If U.S. productivity is going down and, and I don't want to <laughs> be even more inconsiderate and mean and nasty, evil capitalist than I've already been on this interview, but the picture <laughs> had a couple of overweight men in their work vests in, in the top of the article. And I was thinking, yeah, U.S. productivity is down. This is a very appropriate photograph. Um, <laughs> this is this is a bad thing. Like you can't fix a, a, a corrupted work ethic and low productivity by fiddling with interest rates. You can't fix it with STEMI checks. That's the opposite, right? You, I, there, 
I, I don't know that there's really anything besides hunger that can instill a work ethic back into a population that has somehow decided it's a God-given right to have a sofa and a big screen TV and the latest Nintendo. I, I was going to say, I mean, like COVID's really cemented this idea of like comfort and like working from home and like, listen, I'm, I work from home. I'm just, I have a, I have a routine and I'm disciplined because I know if I get comfortable, that's when you get setbacks. But what I've realized is that with all these layoffs that are happening and this whole new chat GPT, this AI thing that's coming into the market right now, there's probably going to be a mass, I mean, it's already happening. We, we saw it with today, like Shopify laid off 20% of their, 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 their uh, labor force. And I'm like, this is much bigger than I think people can comprehend. And I think there's just going to be a much bigger opportunity in uh, blue collar jobs, because I find those have been neglected, especially with younger people where, you know, nobody wants to be a plumber, nobody wants to be a miner, like there's stuff like that, that's, that's coming to fruition. So that gap in the labor market right now is that I think that's probably the most significant shock out of this whole thing, right? Well, yes, and this could be an hour long conversation on its own. But remember that, you know, chat GPT right now is, is a, a screen, a text on a screen. But, you know, it's, you know, Elon's working on full self-driving, right? And if he or whoever cracks that in a really reliable, safe way, you don't need drivers for, uh, you know, your mining equipment anymore, or a lot of, there are a lot of blue collar jobs that can be mechanized. Uh, you know, I think the fast food restaurants are looking at burger flipping machines now and that sort of thing, you know, they're already uh, automating the front line, you know, the customers are showing up and pushing buttons on the machine instead of having, you know, a minimum wage teenager on the back of the counter pushing the same buttons on the machine, right? So, uh, but, but they haven't quite automated the back end of the restaurant. Pretty soon a McDonald's is going to be like a shipping container that you just walk up and you've already ordered your food on the phone and just kicks it out. And it, it retina scans you like a minority report. You just yeah. show up, pick up your food and off you go. You know, you're debited. Um, is it, Let's not get too much into the science fiction. I, I think this is significant. I think that I I think actually all investors, even resources speculators, do need to think about this. Uh, we just had a team meeting internally here in the company, and we were talking about this. And actually, I, I I not only do I not feel threatened in my work because you know I've asked ChatGPT about copper prices or about a you know <laughs> I get something I, I get something that would embarrass an eighth grader I think in terms of understanding you know. To be able to predict, you know, you know, text that would answer a question is is completely different from true understanding. Uh, and but let's not get too philosophical. I mean, where am I going with this? The point was actually, I think the difference between understanding and generating persuasive text matters. I think the lack of understanding is 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 critical when it comes to evaluation, to judgment, to due diligence, to do real due diligence, you need to understand, right? I, you know, I can't send an eighth grader to go look at a mine and tell me mm -hmm. what's right or wrong with it. it, it takes Even if they had a GDP with them. Right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and, you know, so in a way, what, what we came up with in, in the meeting was that, you know, I'm a due diligence guy. My publications are educational and, and the paid ones are, you know, about companies they are about evaluation. They're about this very thing that I think the AIs aren't doing and maybe won't be able to do in the same way. If, if our role is to provide trusted, if not truth with a capital T, 
trusted information, due diligence that can help you make a judgment call. You know, I just, I just don't see how an AI that scours the internet, which gets a lot of garbage information in, mm-hmm. right? You know, get, if, if you ask an AI to, to, you know, study about, you know, copper, or whatever, it's going to get everything, all the copper promoters are out there writing and putting on the internet, as well as the, you know, the few skeptics out there. There's no judgment, discrimination, you know, mm-hmm. positive discrimination in that. So I, I think actually the advent of AI creates, you know, even more need and demand for a business like mine and hopefully for other people that concentrate on sorting the wheat from the chaff. You know, maybe 100 years, or I don't know how long it takes, maybe someone in the future that there really will be true artificial intelligence, like a mind, a person with, that can understand. And maybe then that in digital person can do what I do faster than me. But right now, what's happening right now, I think, you know, is, is a sales argument for my business, frankly. And and I think investors ought to think about this. They, I'm not just trying to tout my own business. I think mm-hmm. in this world where we're not far from having, you know, a, an AI that can show you a very convincing lifelike video of Trump and Biden and Putin all sitting down and playing poker at night, right, uh, with Zelensky serving the whiskey, <laughs> um, you know, in a world where that's possible, the ability to, to tell shit from Shinola becomes like the most valuable thing I can imagine. I was just uh, typing in, uh, you know, I've typed in your name on, on chat GPT and if it can run pretty much articulate who you are with publications, I think you've made it. And then I typed in my name and I was like, couldn't find Dan Kozell anywhere. So I think it just shows you maybe there, there's something to work towards. Now we've got, we've got to build, build our, build our uh, exposure here. Lobo. What do you um, think? You've got a mission there. Uh, what I wanted to ask you one little, you know, coming to the end there, I want to ask you a little more on the philosophical side of things. Like, how do you, like, what do you, what do you have to say about how things have been playing out in America in the West in Europe on a global scale? Just, you know, where do you see things philosophically? Oh, oh, there's a, you can write books on that one. (laughs) Um, I, well, first, I think there's a difference between an important critical difference. Everybody should remember there's a difference between America, the idea, the people, the nation, if you will, uh, and the United States government. And those should never be conflated. And, you know, the government is run by politicians. And whichever color or stripe you like, you know, not all of them agree with you. Like, you know, they're not infallible, even the ones that you do agree. So, so that's one thing. I would say that you know, the idea of America, you know, the, the freedom, the, the free enterprise, the virtue of individualism and, you know, the, the can-do Yankee attitude has been severely eroded. Um, and I think the government education system has a lot to do with that. But it's still there. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you travel around the world. And I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying, you know, I, you know, bits and pieces seem to show up other places. I would say actually what used to be called the Yankee can-do attitude, you know, need to build a bridge to Brooklyn, we're going to do it, right? Um, I see that more in China now than I see in the mm-hmm. United States. And the, the entrepreneurial spirit, I see that more in Eastern Europe than I do in Western Europe or the United States. Like I, I, I teach economics and entrepreneurship, or it's been my hobby in Eastern Europe for a while. And the, and the young people over there, you know, they don't have an ism in their head. They're not left or right or whatever. Mm-hmm. They want to know what works. They want to get ahead in life. They're very practical. 
and they're interested and, and they want to learn. And, and the entrepreneurial spirit, you, know, you just you just get them thinking about what can I do? How can I employ my intellectual capital to translate it into financial capital? And it's it's like opening up a dam or something or, or unleashing the horses at the beginning of the race. They just charge off with ideas. It's I love it. So I, you know, I see bits and pieces around the world, but there's still something about the United States where you know, for all the problems and corruption and everything, we still have rule of law, if not so much from the government, but in the minds of the people. Like people still believe in right and wrong here and that things should be a certain way. And despite, you know, we got a lot of couch potatoes and all these things, most people, I think, still think that, you know, you, you ought to be able to stand on your own two feet. You ought to earn your, your own living. You ought not to be a, a welch on society. You, you ought to contribute. Um, and I, I think all I'm saying is there, there's a lot of strength left. And the idea of, of America is not dead. Um, and, and frankly, I'm not competitive about it. I'm happy to see what I see as the best of America cropping up in other countries. And I hope that's a good thing for the future, because there certainly are a lot of forces trying to tell us all that we need to be fighting and in conflict. And those other colored people over there are bad for us in some way. And never mind the color, you know, I, let me find, I, I, we won't go too long in this. Anywhere in the world, you go in, you sit down at a restaurant and you order food, the waiter brings you the food, and then you pay at the end. If you think about that, some stranger doesn't know who you are, doesn't know you from Adam, has extended credit to you. It's a micro credit, mm -hmm. but they have trusted that you're going to pay. And this is true everywhere on the world. Basically, what this is, in my mind, is evidence that most people are mostly good most of the time. And as long as that's true, I'm an optimist. Wow. That's a, honestly, that's a really perfect way to kind of end this episode amidst um, pretty much all the pessimism that we have here, because there is hope, but I think you have to be optimistic. I think it just in the short term, as we're in this sort of secular bear market, um, you know, you kind of have to have your head on a swivel and kind of pay attention to what, what what's going to happen. Right. So um uh, no that's a perfect segue to, to how we wanted to end this off so lobo where can the uh, listeners again find you well independentspeculator.com over my head here I, the, for the two or three people that didn't stop listening when you said that i'll quickly just say we have a free weekly digest if you sign up for it we do not spam you with a flood of daily advertisements i mean your host can back me up on this i read and, it by the way you, <laughs> right so you know you can see how I think, you can see how I analyze the markets. You know, if you want to step up to the plate for one of the paid publications, it's on you. But the, the free service, I think, provides value. It has original analysis, not published anywhere else, not on the web, nowhere else. It's only on that email. Um, and I really do try to help. Nice. Anyway, That's we need more people. Like, we need more of that. The world kind of needs that little, um, that variable that kind of want to shift the mindset or the philosophy of the people just to bring that optimism to light. I think of myself as a little finger on the little finger of the hand, <laughs> Adam Smith's invisible hand. I'm, I am a for-profit businessman, but I do believe that you, you know you can do well while doing good. Like I, I think I'm a positive force in the world. I help the market di direct capital to where it can do good, create resources, help the world, you know, go forward. 
Yeah, that's the only way though but but listen we appreciate your time and um you know we'll keep the conversation going here as uh things start to unravel but um when there's darkness there's usually light at the end of the tunnel right yeah well thanks guys <laughs> of course and we'll see you next time guys on the new jed mindset podcast ciao guys